Would you please stand with me as we listen to the Word of God read and preached? If you've got pew Bibles, you can open up to page 492. Also Job 2, starting in verse 11, going all the way down through verse 13. Hear the Word of the Lord. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, we ask that uh, as we've heard your word read... That your word, truly, indeed, Jesus Christ, would come out by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit, as, as you've already been falling upon us, as we prayed, as we've sung, as we brought our need to you, pray that your Holy Spirit would do two things in this word. Show us our need for Jesus and give him to us. Amen. Thank you so much for letting me come today. Really, really excited to be here. Super joyful to feel your presence and to feel the presence of the Lord among you. Yep, I'm planting a church down in, in Birmingham. Been a part of this presbytery for a while, serving out of bounds, which is a, a crazy word that makes me sound like a delinquent or that I have an ankle bracelet, but it's not true. Uh, and now I feel like I'm able to emerge back in bounds. I've been living in Birmingham for a while, and basically the Lord sent a lightning bolt of clarity to me and my wife and my family that he wants us to start a new gospel-centered believing community in the suburbs of Birmingham where I live. If you know Birmingham, I live in Cahaba Heights, which in many ways in suburban Birmingham is like right in the middle. Um, and it feels like a, a pretty strategic place to reach people and to minister to those who don't know Jesus and to try to show them who Jesus is and what he's done in word and in deed. I really believe in church planting. I've served a lot of very large and established churches, but I've always had a heart for church planting mostly because of this. I believe that if the church is going to effectively evangelize and reach the culture, that the best way to do that is to plant churches. It's not only because uh, church plants tend to carry a lot of missional energy that comes their way, but it's also because in any time we're trying to share Jesus, it's never just a person sharing the gospel to another person. When the gospel takes hold of someone's life, it draws them into a community. Yes, it draws them into the body of Jesus. 
And so church plants are the way that God magnetically, by the power of the gospel, draws people unto himself. So I think that one of the most effective ways to evangelize a place, a neighborhood, a small town, a city, is to plant churches. And in many ways, our presbytery, our group of churches in our region, I'm viewing as a kind of network of mother churches. And I believe you all are one of my mother churches. So I invite you already to pray for me. We're in the middle of gathering what's called a core team. That core team is going to pray our way through the fall, listen to the Holy Spirit, open up his word, and discern a few details about what we're going to do, about where we're going to meet, and what's the ethos of our church, what are our core values, and living into those missional instincts of the Bible, and those sorts of things. And by God's grace, our aim, which is pretty aggressive, my church planning coach tells me I'm crazy, but we want to start worshiping in the beginning of January. So that would be the goal of being together is to start all that. But again, thank you so much. In a way this morning, um, I'm going to be preaching on the whole book of Job. But have no fear. Length of book does not equal length of sermon. All right? I know what you're thinking. Church planter is so starved to preach to people and to have people to preach to that he's going to preach forever. Everyone's scared right now. But don't worry. It's not going to be that long. If you're used to preaching that takes you through the text verse by verse, well, this sermon won't take that approach, actually, especially because Old Testament stories don't require that kind of atomistic dissection. They're better told in their entirety, and in fact, it's hard to get the whole grasp of what God's getting across apart from hearing a whole story. And so we need to hear that whole thing, and we're, in a sense, importing the whole book of Job, his suffering, the way the friends reacted, and then the way God talk to Job afterward. We've highlighted a few verses, and in a bit, uh, you'll see why. So, not long ago, I went to Church Planters Assessment, and I don't know if you know what that is, but it, you know, it's a battery of psych tasks. They tie you to a chair and demand that you preach the gospel in seven different ways in about 10 seconds. They set you loose in a city to survive for three days on one dollar so that you learn how to raise support, all those sorts of things. Nothing like that happened at Church Planters Assessment, actually. It was a wonderful place where that's where a lot of my uh, clarity came from. But one of the things that they asked us to do was to bring a 10-minute version of the sermon that you would preach on the first Sunday that the doors opened in your church. And funny enough for me, I chose to preach out of the book of Job. And I know what you're thinking. Dude, your church plant's totally going to fail. (laughs) Totally going to fail. Because that's a big downer to start. Who wants to talk about uh, the sufferer on their first Sunday? But I actually think that Job might be one of the best books for missions and evangelism in this cultural moment. And I want to give you two quick reasons why. First... It's all about suffering. And the more I spend time amongst people who don't know Jesus, or more likely down here in the South, people who are disconnecting from God and distancing themselves from the church and from faith, the more I think that one of our best evangelistic moves will be to simply learn how to love and minister better to suffering people. A lot of people are quietly suffering right now. Especially people who maybe because of Mars Hill podcasts or Hillsong documentaries or reports about widespread sexual abuse coming out of large and influential denominations are becoming deeply suspicious of the church and of Christianity. 
Maybe they're weary from a Christianity that seems more concerned with policing the world than proclaiming and demonstrating the love of Jesus. Maybe they're tired of the self-righteous moralism and the gospel-less messaging that basically just sounds like from the church, stop being bad and start being good. So that's the first reason I think that Job is a timely book for this missionary moment. People are suffering, and Job is willing to talk about it. Second, tucked into this wonderful book is a subtle but significant critique of a lot of the ways that you and I tend to get it wrong when it comes to reaching people in this present moment. I want to talk today about what it means to be a friend, to be a Christian, and to be a witness. You know, I live in a home where everybody's talking all of the time. I have four kids, and that classifies on the lower side of a large family. And if you've grown up in a large family and you've sat around the dinner table or been in a car with everybody or just lived life with them, you know that everyone's trying to get their own word in edgewise. I was talking with another friend from a large family and she was saying you always have scarcity mentality because you're always trying to get what's yours and make sure there's enough for you, you know. And so everyone's talking and uh, uh, an average night around the dinner table for the Hicks home is, is everyone speaking and then someone else speaking louder so they can be heard. Interruption after interruption and we eventually needed to have an almost like an intervention with our family just to get us to to be quiet and learn those uh, artful human instincts like waiting for someone else to talk uh, and allowing them to finish before jumping on them you know I actually think that my family is sort of a picture of our present cultural day social media for instance I know that Facebook is set up so that you can post something And then you have what are called replies, meaning it's establishing the paradigm of a dialogue, right? I say something, someone responds, and I have a chance to reply to that reply. But when you read these comments, when you read these things, does it not sound like everyone's just trying to talk over the other person? You start to wonder whether anyone has heard anyone else. And I feel like social media culture has trained us to be that way, and the day and age of polarized politics has trained us to be that way where we're not really listening to anybody else. We're just trying to talk louder. And I kind of feel like the modern church is in the same boat of just sort of jumping into that and saying, we need to do the same thing. Everybody's talking, and in order to get the truths of God's word out to everybody, we just need a bigger megaphone. So let's have a bigger presence online. Let's do more things that shout louder and let's cut through the noise and do all those sorts of things. And that's for good reason. It's because the Lord has revealed to us, not because we're better, but because we need him just like everybody else. But the Lord has revealed to us something to say, a Jesus to preach. And yet with all this output and all this communication, I wonder what it would be like if the church did the shocking unconventional thing in this cultural moment what if we spent way more time just listening one of my favorite theologians Martin Luther has this interesting line he says the ear is the only organ of a Christian and what he means by that is that A Christian is content to live what he calls the vita passiva or the receptive life. Meaning 
Our job is to receive the blessings and goodness and gospel and provision of the Lord. And in fact, that's what he created us to do, is to be receptors. I think there's an analog here, though, for the way that we're not really receiving other people right now. And perhaps we need bigger ears and smaller mouths. Here's what good listening does more than anything. Two things. One, in our minds, our minds, good listening can often transform our perception of someone from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. You see, every time that we meet someone or encounter someone for the first time, we encounter their two-dimensional self. And a lot of times, funny enough, churches end up being places where we only operate in two-dimensionality with one another, and we don't go deep in a relationship, right? And it's the natural instinct to make immediate evaluations and calculations in our head of the kind of person that they are. And we don't always know it, but we often get really specific. We start to imagine based on what we've encountered, their politics, what their spending habits might be, what they do in their leisure time, all from our first encounter or conversation. We don't even know we're doing it, but we're, we're doing it. We take in the data and draw conclu- conclusions. It's a natural and social instinct. We'll draw these conclusions from their accent, or from the car that they drive, or from the clothes that they wear, or how much melanin they have, or what they talk about and the way that they talk about it. Here's what I've discovered. Rarely can I, in a first encounter, or even a second or third encounter, understand them in anything beyond two dimensions. And there's a negative side of that. When we see them in 2D... I simplify and therefore distort who they are. I don't really know them. I've yet to encounter their three-dimensional self, but when I do discover their three-dimensional self, I always, always, always find myself having made some error in judgment, (laughs) some distorted, premature evaluation. When they turn 3D, they complexify. They, well, become more human. Just think about your own friendships. Good friend that you have. Think back to when that you first met them. What were your impressions? Oftentimes a funny thing that happens between friends is you joke about what you thought of them when you first met them. And what's, what makes it funny is that it's not true. What makes it funny is that that's really not who they were. But that's who I thought you were because you were wearing that. Or you said that. Or you were with this person. Right? Right? That's the way it works, two-dimensional, three-dimensional. Our current modes of interaction and our current pace of communication in society has created a context where we are connected to a a lot more people in two-dimensionality. And this has consequences for mission and evangelism. And again, the first point is that good listening helps transform the person in front of us from two dimensions to three dimensions. Two, when we finally see someone as three-dimensional, in other words, when we're listening well, that extra third dimension often comes into focus many times in their suffering. Job is one of the books of wisdom, as we call it. But most commentators on this book will tell you that Job is actually a kind of anti-wisdom The other books of the Bible that we classify as wisdom books, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes even, tend to take on the characteristics of more common ancient wisdom literature. 
Whether or not you're familiar with the Bible, maybe you've taken a world lit class or an ancient lit class and you have some faint memory of those ancient Near Eastern or ancient Greek bits of wisdom sounding like short pithy sayings that offer decent advice for you to live the good life, right? Sayings like this from our Bible, Proverbs 17, 13. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Or Proverbs 19, 3. A man's folly brings his way to ruin. Proverbs such as the biblical ones really are true most of the time. That's what a proverb is, something that's proverbially or often true. They're good advice. They're good wisdom. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom books like this often read like little formulas. They often speak, if I can say it this way, in two-dimensional terms. Behave well and good things happen to you. Behave bad, and bad things happen to you. And though that's often true, in steps the book of Job, the anti-wisdom wisdom book, where a guy behaves, behaves well, and bad things happen to him. This is actually one of the predominant messages of the whole book of Job, and just might be its point. Sometimes the suffering and pain of this life, in the face of a good and all-powerful God, confounds our usual categories, and it just doesn't make sense. Sometimes suffering as we experience it is just unfair. Job exists to remind us of the failure of conventional wisdom, pat answers, and simple solutions. Our lives are often too complex for slogans and bumper stickers and those terrible, horribly untrue phrases that we see plastered over all of our gyms, like this one that's in my gym. There's no such thing as failure, only learning experiences. Oh, really? Tell that to the pastors who end up getting podcasts documenting their learning experiences, right? As I was saying before, we're in a cultural moment where just as there's been a failure of pat answers to the hard questions of suffering. So there's been a kind of failure of formulaic and easy Christianity. Christianity that tends to be more Proverbs and less Job. More simplified, easy answers and less messy and incomplete answers. You know, there was a time in America where that approach seems to work for Christianity. But I'm sensing that time is past. I also just sense a growing number of Job's out there in my community, a growing number of sufferers for whom the simplicity of typical Christianity just doesn't work. Whether it's because it's too tangled up in politics or too uncaring in the face of real social issues or too moralistic or behavior policy, trying to get everybody to do one thing or look a certain way, too reactive and denouncing rather than being a place that listens well. Too motivated from fear, clouding any instincts of love. And that's why it's actually Job's friends, Job's friends, who interest me. Earlier this year, I was at a pastor's retreat, and the speaker pointed out from this text something kind of funny, but mostly painful. When Job's life first fell apart, his friends came around, and here's what the text says in verse 13. Job's friends sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. 
the speaker commented, the problem with Job's friends is that they eventually opened their mouth. And that's what the rest of the book unfolds, actually, is their very mouthy response. Very Proverbs-like, I might add, to just why it is that Job is suffering as though they're speaking for God. Hmm. Mouthy response as though we're speaking for God? I, as a member of Jesus' church, resemble that remark. And don't get me wrong, the scriptures are clear. The Bible itself is a communicative document that demands communication. At its center is its main message, which is called good news. News must be spoken as I'm speaking now, right? But it seems in this day and age, more than ever, people need to feel seen and heard before they will ever listen to any news that you and I are giving. I wonder if it would have been different for Job if his friends just sat there and wept with him and then sat there some more and then sat there some more. I wonder if Job's friends could have sat there long enough so that Job could move in their eyes from being two-dimensional to three-dimensional. In the same way, I wonder, I wonder if it might be different for the church, us, if in this age of constant talk and communication, we took the posture of drawing near and listening well and weeping with those who weep. Curiosity is a wonderful virtue for the Christian serious about reaching people for Jesus in our present age. Asking questions in a non-judgmental, empathetic way Maybe one of the most important parts of the evangelistic process that many of us have forgotten. The lost art of Jesus, actually. The lost art of listening well enough to find the point of emotional resonance and understanding. The ache that disables them touching the ache that cripples you. Asking questions often helps you navigate the windy path from the bristly surface of someone toward the deep chambers of their own heart, often where suffering resides. And it just might take more than three conversations. We often think that love always takes the form of action. But love, especially in our day and age where everyone is talking and no one is really listening, just might take form in listening and hearing. Not doing or saying but receiving, hearing, and understanding. Asking questions is actually the path that Job's friends didn't take. When they opened their mouths, they began talking at Job or over Job, louder than Job's pain and suffering. Interestingly, and this may be painful for us to hear, they began using their biblical knowledge to put Job in his place. In the spirit of what Christians often say they do today, to speak the truth in love. I'm just speaking the truth in love to you, Job. This way I'm telling you about God's word is my way of saying I love you. And it didn't feel like love to him. And notice what all this conventional wisdom did. It only served to confuse and confound Job and to drive him away. In many of my conversations with non-Christians former Christians, and Christians distancing themselves from the church and hanging on by a thread, 
This is what I often find going on. Oftentimes, when you and I lack patience and curiosity, we are, in effect, taking a person's three-dimensional problems and trying to shove them into a two-dimensional space. And it doesn't fit. And the discomfort of that force fit actually drives them away from you and away from God. Curiosity is a form of God-shaped love because it says, I will come beside you and I'm going to sit with you in this mess. The problem with Job's friends was that they began speaking for God instead of letting God be God. They transgressed the boundary between creature and creator. Many times in our efforts to communicate the love of Jesus Christ to someone else, we transgress this same boundary. We let anxiety and impatience of wanting people to change, wanting people to get unstuck, force us into a false belief that I am responsible to fix them. How many times have you and I shared about Jesus from that place? Of course, we don't say it like this, but our actions betray deep down that I am responsible for that person's salvation. Just like Job's friends were so sure that they spoke for God and that they were responsible to lead him to the truth. But fixing people is actually above our pay grade, right? We're reformed Protestants after all. And we, of, of all Christians, should know this. We believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe that justification happens by faith alone. 100% by the work of God alone. We love those alones. They're very important. We believe that salvation is all God and no us. And yet somehow there comes that moment when we get impatient with God's timing. And we act as though all that stuff about God doing all the work in our salvation is bogus. For you theology nerds, we become functional Arminians, functional Pelagians. And sometimes for the hurting person, for the person with tons of questions, when we speak too soon like Job's friends, we force their 3D problems into that impossible 2D space. And the pain and discomfort of that force fit is so strong the pressure in that confined space is so great that they burst out away from you, away from the church, away from God. They're like a ketchup bottle that's squeezed so hard that the lid finally pops open and they're splattered all over the walls of the earth, never to be gathered back in again. You know, I want to be clear. For the Christian, there eventually is a time to speak, to clearly offer the words of life. To tell them about the comfort and love and satisfaction and wholeness found in Christ and in Christ alone. I don't think what is a tribute to St. Francis is right. Preach the gospel and if necessary use words. It's always necessary to use words. To quote the Apostle Paul. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, the word of the cross. So the urgent question for us is, when? When am I finally supposed to speak? And I'm going to give you a very dissatisfying answer. Only the Spirit knows. Only the Spirit knows. But as we are the kinds of people 
whose ears are bigger than our mouths, what that allows us to do not only is to listen to the person in front of us, but to be quiet enough of spirit to hear the Holy Spirit moving among us. And I'll tell you, in my experience, it's on the other side of someone being moved in the sovereignty of God into and out of a season of suffering where I often see the Spirit says, go, tell, comfort, love. And in a way, if my journey with that person up until that point has been faithful and has been loving and says, I will sit with you. The Spirit says, go and love. And they hear those words of Christ as love and as a way out. The ministry of listening, the ministry of curiosity, the ministry of just sitting there with someone, inhabiting that three-dimensional space with them, is, I think, a deeply Christian thing. And here's why. It's exactly what God's love looks like. When God the Son became incarnate, when Jesus took on flesh, he showed his willingness to become like Job's friends when they started out, to plop down with us in the dirt of our suffering, to go all the way to that dirty manger. The God who actually knew everything about us, the God who already saw us in three dimensions, didn't despise drawing near, looking us in the eyes and asking us questions. Questions like these questions that are actually questions that I've taken from Jesus' mouth. So these aren't random. These are Jesus' questions that he asked people in their need and in the moment. Why are you so afraid? What has you worried? Do you want to be healed? What is it that you want? What do you want me to do for you? Why is your heart so hard? Do you want to get well? Maybe some of you are hearing Jesus ask your heart that, those questions right now. When God took on flesh, when God became a human being, he proved himself to be the kind of God committed to listening, to just sitting there, to not saying anything. And there's a peculiar moment in the life of Jesus, a particular moment, the God-man, that is the archetype of this kind of ministry. The ministry of just sitting there and not saying anything. It's his crucifixion. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah described the crucifixion with these words. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The gospel writers pick up on Isaiah's observation when they recount what they saw on Good Friday. Mark, for instance, says that the high priest interrogated Jesus and finally said, probably out of exasperation, have you no answer to make? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Mark says. There are many reasons why Jesus was silent that day. But I've read enough Bible 
to know that this is true. Jesus was silent at his crucifixion because he was busy listening to you. And trust me, I'm not just giving you some cool poetic devotional talk. Jesus was quiet because he was listening to you, sitting with you in your pain. And he wasn't going to talk. He wasn't going to squirm out of his crucifixion. He was going to sit there and he was quiet because when he heard your pain, your pain, he was so moved by it that he committed himself to doing something about it. Nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross for you. His ministry of just sitting there with you, just listening to you, moved into action. He was so moved by your burden and your problem and your suffering that he said, I need to take that on. I need to bear it with them. I need to bear it for them. No one needs friends like the friends of Job. But everyone needs friends like the friend of sinners. And maybe, just maybe, sinners loved and befriended by Jesus, a.k.a. the church, a.k.a. you and me, will learn by God's grace to assume in greater measure the imitation of our Lord in the ministry of just sitting there. But even if we don't, Praise God that Jesus is committed to just sitting there and listening, seeing us and hearing us. Amen. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your love in sending your son. Thank you for your love in sending the Holy Spirit to us to give us Jesus triune God we praise you we exalt you we are stirred by you as the missionary God who would send yourself to us and we are stirred to desire to minister as you minister and love as you love but we know that only happens as your love cracks open all the hard parts of our heart and spills us out as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice of praise so make us that sacrifice this morning and have mercy on us we need your mercy Amen.